0: what does a pharmacist do well most people might answer that a pharmacist dispenses the medications that my doctor prescribes now i work with a ton of great pharmacists and one thing that i don't generally see is excitement about pills in a vial and this is probably because pharmacists have been trained to do so much more so what can you get excited about in your community to find out let's go beyond the scripts Welcome back to Beyond the Scripts. I'm your host Will Tuft, the Director of Education at Pioneer RX, and today we have a special guest joining us from one of my favorite places up in Utah, and one of my favorite stories—the multi generational compounding pharmacist. It doesn't get uh, much cooler than that. I really love that uh, that whole dichotomy of the you know the family pharmacy, uh, you know, with that that local feel, but again, those multi generations. Uh, under one roof is always such a uh just a really cool thing to imagine so uh welcome ben jolly uh thanks for joining us today how are you up there
1: i'm doing all right life's treating me well i can't complain frankly
0: (laughs) awesome so um tell me uh tell me where you're, uh, you're uh you're talking to us from today
1: so i am in salt lake city utah um currently at my home actually but um Pharmacy's just down the road from me. So, anyway, um, but yeah, this is this is my office where I call <laughs> people and talk to them about DIR fees and other stuff. is Is this little this little chair right here? So,
0: <laughs> it is. It is funny that uh, you know how COVID has really made us kind of. Uh, it's been kind of a weird thing to integrate your work life into your home life more than I think we did before. Um, you know, whether you had to work remotely or whether you, you know, you've just kind of extended that, um, you know, as everyone else is working remotely, it's just become more commonplace, but it's a kind of an interesting thing that two years ago, uh, I would probably be like, wow, are you, are you at home? (laughs) But it's, it's so commonplace now. It's normal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's my house. So, yeah. So, if you're
1: home, what's going on back at the pharmacy? Uh, my dad's on today. I wasn't going to work today anyways, because um, today's my day off. So, um, my dad's there. Uh, a couple other pharmacists are there. So, um, I don't know. We uh, had a staff meeting this morning that I phoned into, because I was visiting pharmacies. Today's my uh, Today's my monthly day to go visit, like, five pharmacies. So... This is in between pharmacy one and pharmacy two, three, four, five. So um yeah that's that's how my day's going so far.
0: Nice. So uh let's let's uh kind of unpack all of that, man. So uh when you say uh your dad's back at the pharmacy, which pharmacy is that? And tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so that's Jolly's compounding pharmacy, Salt Lake City, Utah, in the sugar house area. Um we uh so my my grandpa started the family pharmacy on June 7th, 1954. Um about two miles from where the pharmacy currently is located. And then um my dad and his brothers bought out grandpa in '96, I want to say it was. And they expanded it to three locations. Um and then they bought each other out. And then his brothers sold their stakes to other partners. So now, the Jollies here, where I work, is the only one still in family hands. Um, though so members of the family work in the other pharmacies. Um, but yeah, it's uh, I don't know. Um, family legacy, I guess.
0: <laughs> nice, yeah. So I never got to meet uh, your grandfather, Joel, right? Or is it Joel? It's Joel, Joel. Okay, and then. Dean Jolly, I think uh, a lot of people watching this podcast will probably be familiar. Uh, Dean's definitely somebody that you'd recognize out at the trade shows. I always look for his bow tie in the crowd. Uh, you know, anytime I'm at a trade show, uh, great guy, great pharmacist, always somebody I love to talk to at trade shows. Yeah,
1: usually the bow tie and a and a ball cap. But that's, that's it. That's, that's his signature signature view. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. First time I saw him, I was like, this guy, I like. (laughs) That's my pops. So, so, uh, so how's that work? You know, you, uh, grew up like, I didn't realize your, uh, uncles were involved as well. So you grew up family, uh, family pharmacy. Did you grow up kind of behind the walls of that pharmacy, stocking the shelves, helping out dad, or how did that work?
1: Yeah. So, Um, I wasn't very involved in the business um, until, so I guess, a couple of times, like when I was like five or ten, or I don't even remember, but a couple times, my dad would take me into work, and I would just file prescriptions, like they'd sit me down in a corner, buy like some random drugs, and I would just file the scripts. Um, I guess it must have been when I was like seven or something, because... We moved into this location when I was seven. Um, So it would have been then. And then I I would – I just remember sitting there and filing scripts and being like, oh, I found one that's uh, supposed to be in the narcotic thing. And they're like, good job, little 10-year-old Ben. You're doing great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then uh, when I was 14, I started working as a clerk there. And then when I got my driver's license, I started doing deliveries. I graduated high school, I got my tech license, started doing that. And then um and then I went out to St. Louis um for pharmacy school. Worked at um at Gateway Apothecary out there. Awesome people, great people, wonderful pharmacy. Um, and then uh then when I graduated pharmacy school, I came back and worked for dad and um that was that was a fun experience. I uh, I drove through the night from St. Louis to Salt Lake, slept at my parents' house. Um, let's see. Then we we went to church the next morning. That was Saturday. Then Sunday, went to church. Monday morning, my dad's like, all right, everybody, this is Benjamin. He's in charge. I'm going on <laughs> vacation for two weeks. Goodbye. <laughs> so then he's in Europe for two, the next two weeks. And the other pharmacist there was a fill-in pharmacist who came on full time with us at that point, but she'd only been working there for like two weeks. Um, The other pharmacist had just taken another job. So so it was basically me just clawing my way out of, uh, hi, I'm the pharmacist now, even though I'm still working on a temporary pharmacist license because I haven't passed my boards yet. And so I have to be supervised by this other pharmacist, but I'm in charge. So that was a that was a whole fun experience. That was June of twenty eighteen. Man yeah
0: so, so there's a lot in, in that story. Uh, man. So, you know, it sounds like a, from an early age, it's, it's almost like watching one of those, uh, movies where they show the flashbacks that kind of show the kid's personality. But I see a young Ben Jolly looking for anomalies in the data, like (laughs) as he's filing, which is definitely going to surface again, uh, as we talk in this conversation. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but then it's, you know, it's also really cool, um, you know, to hear, I, I was wondering how that worked with, you know, father and, and son working in the same thing. Is it like, you know, um, my way or, or the highway, this is the way we do it? Or, hey, I'm going to Europe, trial by fire, have fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was that. It was like, so, you figure it out, goodbye. <laughs> yeah.
1: And then, I mean, most of the time, then it's just been like, all right. he he more or less gives me free reign on like designing the workflows in the pharmacy, figuring out what we're doing. Um, but you know, there's, there's places where we agree and places where we disagree. And you know, like any, like any, uh, working for family, it's, it has its ups and its downs. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I'm also my father's son and, uh, I've always thought about how cool it would be to, you know, have that kind of thing. Like we, we, we have things that we share that we bond over and those mean the most to me, you know, um, and, and those are hobbies, you know, but we've never, I never had that like on a professional level. And, uh, and I, and I could just see where that passion would, would both make it so much more rewarding, but also, uh, anytime there's strong passion, sometimes, you know, that, that can also create other, uh, you know, other strong feelings of, of you know, I feel this way about this. So, yeah, yeah. So uh, right out of uh, right out of high school, you said you went and got your tech license. the um, The natural order would be, well, I'm going to stay here and, and stay at this pharmacy, or um, you know, maybe even to to say, I don't want to be a pharmacist. The Jolly seemed like very uh, uh, headstrong, independent group. You know, was was there a time where you said? no, I don't want to be a pharmacist. I want to, you know, I want to be a pro skateboarder dad.
1: (laughs) Uh, Never pro skateboarder. That was never never on my radar. Uh, But I I did think about other career paths. Um, But uh, so I, I served a mission for my church in Italy um, about, about that time. So I was, I went out to Italy when I was 20, uh, right, right before my 20th birthday and uh, stayed there for two years. And, Told people about, about Jesus, and you know, um, that was a it was a good experience. But um anyway, I, I bring that up because that was when I made the decision that yes, I would be a pharmacist rather than going and being I don't know. I was always interested in chemistry. Like in high school, I took AP chemistry, and and so that was that was always a a personal interest of mine. Um, but I thought maybe I want to be a physicist. Maybe I want to it was it was always going to be something in hard science cuz my my grandpa on my other side, my mom's my mom's dad, he he was a physics professor at the University of Utah. He actually was the chair of the department for a while. He um, oh, cool He He actually was like on the He was in the group of people that had to deal with the whole cold fusion thing that happened there. He wasn't part of the people that discovered cold fusion but he was part of the folks that like had to discipline them afterwards so that was anyway so i don't know physics was a potential career path but anyway um while i was while i was out in italy um the the leader of the mission called the mission president he uh a guy named david wolfram um (laughs) He he would interview us every couple of weeks, every like month and a half. Um, and the the last interview before I went home, um, he he said, now, look, you got to get a job and it's got to be a job that's going to pay you decently well so that you don't have to work like five jobs. Um, you got to get a job that's something you enjoy so that you don't wake up in the morning, look over at your wife and kids and be like, man, I hate this. I got to go to work because they're depending on me. You got to be something you'll enjoy so that you're not like resenting your wife and kids. And it's got to be something where you've got a reasonable, reasonable amount of free time so that you can give back to the community, to the church and so forth. And so anyway, so I, I pondered on that for the last few weeks before I, uh, before I came home to the U S and, uh, Anyway, I, I thought to myself, "Well, I've worked in the pharmacy for like six years now. It's it's all right. I I enjoy it, I guess.
0: <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> it, it,
1: it, it's it's not like something where I look where I'm like, man, I hate working there. I don't want to go to work. Um, like, it, it's it's a reasonably enjoyable career. So like, okay, that's box number one. If I'm if I go to pharmacy school, the pay is it's pretty good." I mean like 60 bucks an hour is what was the going rate at the time. And I was like, you know, that's, that's pretty good. I can probably support a family on that. Let's check that box. And, uh, and like my dad has always been able to, to help other people even though he's working quite a lot. So yeah, I guess let's check that box too. That, that checks all the boxes that my president <laughs> said. So, and like also it it's, interesting from like the perspective of chemistry and all these things and so yeah let's do it and so that was that was when i made the decision i wanted to be a pharmacist um i was sitting in an out like sitting in italy just while i was going around knocking on people's doors and saying hey can i tell you about jesus (laughs)
0: <laughs> so you're just kind of adding to that kind of movie moment that I talked about—a young, a young, uh, a young ben Jolly in the corner finding these uh, anomalies and and, and data filing—and uh, now I'm, I'm kind of picturing you in a you know Italian uh, countryside sipping a cappuccino, pondering you know existentially your your career path. But you know that's that's a really like kind of cool moment of clarity that I think a lot of people in their you know early years probably don't necessarily get to have. It's kind of a, I don't know, um, more of an analytical way of of thinking about that career path than than most young people, I think, kind of uh, adapt to, you know, usually that it seems like maybe later on, uh, you know, that second career, (laughs) uh, you know, people are able to make those decisions. So, um, so you came back. And uh you said you went to um was it Gateway Pharmacy?
1: Gateway apothecary, yeah, out in St. Louis was, was where I interned while I was in pharmacy school. Yeah.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So um so that was while you were in school. I was I was wondering what led you away from the family pharmacy. Um because you had options there for uh local school, right? Yeah, I did.
1: So there's there's two pharmacy schools here in Salt in Salt Lake. Uh, there's Roseman and there's uh there's University of Utah and um so a- after i came back I-, I i was working on my undergraduate and um i applied to the university of utah one year and um they didn't accept my application that year that was i guess that would have been for the 2017 graduating class and um because they wanted to have folks that had a bachelor's degree and i hadn't finished my bachelor's yet Um, so my, my wife and I had gotten married just like in, uh, in 2013, she's from St. Louis. And so we, we decided that if I got in that year, we would go to the U and if not, we would just apply again and see what, see what the dice held. And so I applied to St. Louis and I applied to the U and I applied to Roseman. They all accepted me that next year after I had a bachelor's. And, um, anyway, the, we, we decided that since her family was in St. Louis and we were probably going to come back and work for dad for like the next 40 years, um, <laughs> it would probably be good to have some time with her family out sure. in St. Louis. And so we, so we decided to take the leap and we moved out to St. Louis for the next four years. And that was a fantastic decision. Um, there was also I also had this like there's a moment where I was sitting in um in the interviews at the University of Utah College of Pharmacy and uh and they they just had like these interviews with fourth year students um who were about to graduate and they're like, Well, what do you want to do? Why did you go to the U rather than somewhere else? Because they were basically just had all of the potential applicants saying, like listening to people of why they actually went, and this uh, this girl stands up and she's like, I, I want to go open an independent like Jolly's Pharmacy. And I was like, <laughs> Okay, so if I go here, everyone knows exactly who I am and has predetermined expectations of who I am, what kind of like, yeah, they're either going to expect me to succeed. Brilliantly, or they're going to like actively sabotage me. I, I think I also want to just get away from, from the family name for a little bit and go make my own name for myself out in St. Louis. And
0: yeah, yeah was... I'm, I'm. just picturing another scene from from the movie where you're standing in front of the mirror on the first day of school, like, should I should I wear a bow tie or no? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs>
1: i think i haven't worn a bow tie since i was 12 um and that was one of those like little zip ties you know um but i don't think i've worn one since then it's it's just never been part of my uh my persona i guess
0: yeah yeah so uh so you make it back home uh you're there at the pharmacy now at the pharmacy um Prior to your arrival, you know, what, was there a focus on compounding? Has, has there always been that that chemistry and, and compounding focus there?
1: Oh yeah. So our our pharmacy was like one of the very, 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 very first uh, PCCA members. Um, our we so the old location on the, that's like two miles away from where we are today. Um, I think was like member number 20 or something like that with PCCA. And so um, they, my PCCA started in 1981. My dad graduated pharmacy school in 1980. So he, his brother, Marty um, went out to this PCCA convention and this PCCA like convention. I say it's like 20 people in a room. Um, And they joined BCCA and started doing progesterone um, vaginal inserts for folks with premenopausal syndrome, like right out of the gate, 1981. And they started doing just a large volume of compounding And it. That basically that one choice steered the direction of the pharmacy for the next 40 years. And oh, oh, wow. here we are today. Um, and so, yeah, we, We've been compounding basically since my dad graduated forty years ago.
0: Nice. So you guys kind of found that initial niche. What does your compounding spectrum kind of look like now? Like, are there still very specific niches that you uh, operate in, or?
1: I mean, yeah. So we we do we do all sorts of compounding. We've got women's health, you know, hormone replacement, like we started with, and that's still a very strong segment to the business. Um, we've been We've done a lot of veterinary stuff. We've done lots of, um, you know, uh, flavoring and all of those things. Um, Dermatology is a small piece. Um, recently, we've had a lot of call for ketamine in various forms—nasal spray, lozenge, um, and so forth—and mostly for psychiatric indications. But um, that's been that's been really interesting to see that because that's only been like since I started. Since I graduated pharmacy school is when we really started doing a lot more of that. The those formulas are ones that we've done for 20 years, but like we do like one prescription every couple months for them. Now it's like several times a day. Folks will come in and ask and have a prescription for ketamine.
0: That's interesting. Is it a uh, like a, a particular like? niche or like an office that that kind of believes in that therapy or is that just kind of a, a new trend in uh in prescribing overall both yeah.
1: um there's there's one particular office that for sure comes a lot to us but also um but also there's you know just a lot more ketamine clinics around like y- you may you may see around advertisements that are like go get intravenous ketamine for like ten thousand dollars or something And it's this miracle cure for depression. Um, Turns out that you can administer the drug with the reasonably good effect, also nasally and sublingually, not just IV. Um, And certainly you can supplement the one with, you can supplement the intravenous with, um, with these others. And so these growths of these ketamine clinics has meant that we've also picked up a lot of like maintenance patients as well, which has been been good
0: sure sure so tell me a little bit more about your pharmacy you guys have been there for a while uh kind of a community hub i would imagine at that point you've got some pretty deep roots uh so are you guys also you know a you know that that neighborhood pharmacy or are you more doing like kind of back uh closed door you know um compounding and med sync that kind of thing
1: no so we're 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 a community pharmacy just You know we're on the corner of corner two roads. Um, In fact, the the original pharmacy was Jolly's Corner Pharmacy, and all but one of the locations today is still on a corner. And so, anyway, um, well, actually, the original name was Smith. No, sorry, the original name was King Jolly Rexall Drug. Was the was the name in 1954?
0: That is strong. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was Mr. King and Mr. Jolly. that were partners and they were Rexall franchisees. So gotcha. was, yeah, no. So the location where we're at has been a pharmacy actually since the twenties, um, the, the last twenties, um, <laughs> it's the twenties now, right? Um, so it's been a it's been a pharmacy for a hundred years where we're at it's not been in our family for a hundred years it's only been in our family since uh ninety seven but um but yeah it's been and i actually have this um so my grandma collected all sorts of pharmacy artifacts
0: oh yes i was i was about to ask i was like man the king the, the king jolly rexall stuff from the 50s must be like must be prominently somewhere at the jolly uh state <laughs> like there must be a really cool man cave with the king jolly rexall stuff somewhere
1: yeah so there's um i don't know if there's the king jolly rexall sign anywhere that may have been just tossed i don't know oh man um but she collected like old prescription bottles all sorts of old stuff um anyway um i found in the basement where we keep uh, all of her old stuff um i found this directory of pharmacies in the salt lake area from 1956 i think and it lists king jolly rexall drug and it lists the pharmacy where we're at now which was at the time called king and page rexall drug it still has the same phone number, um, but the phone number was listed as H U four four three nine three, because at the time you did phone numbers by like the, I guess block that they were in, so there would be a, like you do, you divide up a city into, basically uh, divisions for like, this area is served by this um, server I guess you'd say today, right. Um, this server serves like these 20 city blocks or something. And so the prefix to the number would be uh, two letters corresponding to the name of that, um, that server is what we call it today. It's, I can't remember, the substation? I guess. Anyway, maybe. The, the, the substation was called Hudson. And so the phone number was Hudson 44393, H-U 44393, which if you look at your phone uh, with like your T9 stuff, the hu corresponds to four eight. That's still our phone number today, which is still blows my mind that
0: it's the that's, same phone
1: number since the fifties.
0: That's really really cool, actually. So uh, a lot has stayed the same. Obviously, um, you know there there must always be a uh, a, a jolly at the uh, what, what what was the Game of Thrones reference there? There there's always a uh, not the Lannisters. Oh, man, somebody listening is just going to tear this apart. <laughs> 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 like, oh, how did you not know? Oh, okay. Wrong. All right. Well, you, you okay. got to catch up. Yeah. Yeah. There's there, there's always one of the family names in the castle. Um, can't think of it right now. But uh, obviously, a lot has changed as well. Uh, and, you know, you've kind of come in in an interesting time uh, where, you know, your dad has definitely seen a lot of changes in the pharmacy as far as. Billing practices, you know, moving to uh, computers was probably done under your under your dad's watch. I would assume. Yeah, ah. they,
1: they they I think they first got the they first got a computer I think in seventy five, so like right before my dad went to pharmacy school. But while he was still working there as you know an assistant, I don't think they had technicians at the time. Um, so he was like a pharmacy assistant, delivery boy, all that, just like I did. But that was and that was when they got the computer. And he, he described to me that like every week or something, they'd have to do a backup of the system. And the backup of the system is you'd take a tape roll, you know, yeah. the ones that you see in the old movies. And you'd stick that on there. You'd back everything up, take that home with you. <laughs> and that was your backup, which just, anyway, it, it just is. Uh, and the the computer at the time was like, the size of this room that I'm sitting in. So,
0: but yeah, which is kind of crazy because in 1975, you did not have to switch over to a computer. So, uh, Joel was obviously very forward thinking as well. Um, like that's a big leap in 1975.
1: It is. Yeah. But it was, apparently it was worth it. Cause like before you had computers, if you wanted to refill a prescription, you would go through all of the files by hand and you'd go pull out a prescription and then you'd write on it refill number, blah, blah, filled this date. And then you'd file it back in the serial number. But, like, can you imagine going through 30,000 prescriptions to try and find the one prescription for Mrs. Jones? Like,
0: right. Well, can you imagine trying to run the, the analytics that you really have to run today?
1: <laughs> you yeah. know. Yeah. That that reminds me of something actually. Um so when I was in pharmacy school, I went on rotation to uh uh Towncrest Pharmacy in Iowa, um in Iowa City. And um Randy McDonough um is the owner there. He uh so I followed him pretty avidly while I was in pharmacy school and read all of his articles in APHA's thing and uh he he said that his like he was a protege of this gentleman named uh Eugene V White Eugene Vaden White which is also just a fantastic name um who ran a pharmacy in Virginia um and the dude invented pharmacy profiles um He kept a profile of allergies, all of the medicines that you were taking, all of your family members on an index card. And so he'd have his prescription files, but then he'd also have an index card for each family of what the prescription number was, what all they were taking. So he would, he actually like invented the concept of doing interaction checks and allergy checks and all of these things and having like an index card basically, which today we have is, you know, your Alt-RR in Pioneer rx profile um but that was that was the origin of it was this guy and he graduated the same year as my grandpa in 1950 but he invented this concept of having a index card with all of the prescriptions listed and so that's how he would you know someone needed a refill he'd just go pull out his index card it would say the prescription number he'd go pull out the prescription it's the same concept as we use today just now it's a computer instead of you having to go through a file that index. Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, I have a a 17 year old uh, uh, kid that like, I, I don't, I don't know that I've taken the time to explain the Dewey decimal system to. Right. Like I, I feel like he's missing out. I feel like we spent more time with that and we're, and we're still very far uh, removed from, you know, that, that analog uh, load of uh, paperwork. So, you know, your, your dad saw, well, Joel saw a, a ton of changes, obviously. Uh, your dad has seen the landscape change immensely with reimbursements, with Part D coming into play. Um, and really kind of a new awareness had to be, um, you know, right up on the forefront, right there with patient care of just reimbursement data and and what's going on in your pharmacy behind the scenes. Uh, enter young Ben Jolly, uh, who has that, that interest in, uh, chemistry and, and, and going back to pulling those old cards <laughs> sitting in the corner. Uh, but now I feel like many of the, anyone watching this, many of your peers kind of associate, uh, Ben Jolly with, you know, being more of that analytical mindset, who's, uh, really kind of delved into the, uh, you know, the, the, the data behind the pharmacy. So tell me a little bit about what kind of drew you into, you know, really what's kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of, kind of your namesake now, uh, your name came up in Montana the other, the other day at a, at an event when somebody asked about DIR fees.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that that actually takes us back to St. Louis. So, while I was working in St. Louis, my uh my boss, the guy who owned the store, Chris Garrison, um great guy. Um anyway, he he hired me and I was just filling scripts, you know, just just doing fulfillment and uh then um I started to notice that I had, you know, a brain for for numbers and stuff like that and basically would hand me weird problems to solve and um so like one of the things I did was optimize their ordering system so that we would do like one big order it was a specialty pharmacy that did like basically a fifth of all of the HIV um, patients in the whole metro area there so we would do you know, hundreds of bottle of bottles of Truvada and Norvir and Stribuild and these all these HIV drugs, we do hundreds of bottles a week. And so um so his son-in-law Craig was the like president of Gateway and he asked me to figure out how to um optimize the ordering there so that we basically so that we could have a better cash flow. And the payment cycle was once a week and so we would or so we would So I would do these projections using computer X at the time um, of what kind of volume we would need for this week, the next week, the next week, the next week. And um, so we would do one order basically on Monday, get in, I don't know, like a half a million dollar of product the next day, and then use that the whole week. And then it would be, we would have basically nothing left at that point. And so we were able to optimize the cash flow of the pharmacy because, you know, you had to buy all these drugs and then pay for them a week later. Um, but you didn't want to have anything left at the end of the week was the sure. end the deal because then you were, you were out cash that you could have used for paying it off anyway. Um, so that was one of the projects. And then he got and me on to, it's interesting
0: how like necessity drives those things. Like MedSync is, I don't think anybody will argue uh, like an incredible improvement to your workflow, to your efficiency, to everything, but it's changed and change is hard. So you see that in like, you know, the LTC environment, MedSync has been adapted for a long time because you really have to do it that way. Um, and now, you know, the, the need for efficiency has driven MedSync into the retail environment. you see that with, drugs like that where you're holding costs and your purchase cost is just so high, you just have to do it differently. Um, so it is interesting how you see those, those really extreme cases that, that drive that need. Um, but then, you know, how can you adapt that when, when it's just beneficial and, it, and it's not that crazy, you know, uh, circumstance like those really high, you know, high cost drugs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, that that was, like, one of the first things that got me into, like, this data analytics insanity, I guess, that I do now. Um, <laughs> but then then they gave me other projects, like, here, um, do all of our reverse rebills. Like, find, find places where the MAC price changed or the AWP changed or whatever, and then reverse and rebill them. And so I did that for the rest of my career there. And then... Um, and then we got onto the subject of DIR fees and he's like, figure this out, <laughs> basically. Just one so- day he's like, figure this out. And so <laughs> I read through like, there's each of the PSAOs um, publishes like a guide of this is, this is this kind of DIR, this is this kind of DIR, this is this one. But like these do- the, the complexity of it is such that like these documents are like 90 pages long. And so unless you're a weird nerd, you never read it. Um, and so since he had given me specific instructions, please figure this out. I went and found this document and the first four times I read through it, I was just like, my eyes were glazing over and what in the world are we talking about here? But then, then eventually I figured it out. Um, and that led to where I am today where people are just like, you want to talk about diographies, just, just talk to Ben Jolly. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming when when you get that pop up on your uh, on your iPhone that says you have to review the new terms and conditions, you're the guy that's actually reviewed those terms and conditions. <laughs> no, no one has the time to read the Apple license. Agreement. No one. When
1: it's a contract from Caremark, I read it. When it's a yeah. contract from pop-up, I read it if it's the new terms and conditions for the iPhone, I mean, that thing's like what 97 pages long and it's like this much change from the last one. No, no one's got time. Well,
0: but, but but that does seem to be, uh, seem to be the case with, uh, with a lot of the, uh, DIR fees is that it is, uh, purposely over complex. Uh, and, and if, uh, you know, if, if transparency is the, uh, the the key focus there, I think they missed the missed the mark for for most pharmacies. So anybody that's not in a pharmacy who's watching this is probably wondering what a couple things that you talked about already were. So the whole idea that pharmacy billing relies on so many elements outside the pharmacy's control are a little you know it's a little bizarre. I can't think of another industry. Anywhere that is that is set up that way, where literally uh, your reimbursement and, and you know your your bottom line has nothing to do with the service you provide or the cost of your goods, because literally there's a a couple lists of fictitious numbers: the AWP, the MAC, the WAC, that uh, all these all these weird uh, uh, three digit codes that can change really outside of your control and there's a lot of opportunity there to go back and rebuild, like you said, which of course requires quite a bit of work, quite a bit of uh, analysis. And then, um, you know, really on the initial billing, you're also kind of at a loss unless you're extremely proactive uh, and aware of what's going on in your pharmacy. So, you know, explain a little bit about... You know how those numbers change and 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 what especially if somebody's watching this who's who's not familiar with pharmacy billing just give me the the elevator pitch on how this works
1: okay let, let's see if I can think about that okay so <laughs> so i'm gonna i'm gonna lean in here um, <laughs> so pharmacies get paid in this deliberately confusing um deliberately confusing, obfuscated market that is designed as um, it, it's designed to be mysterious to everyone, except the person in the middle of the of the transaction, which is the pharmacy benefit manager. Um, so, and the reason for that is, as Antonio Chacha says, with mystery comes margin, right? So if you can if you can make things confusing, then you can make more money if you're the person in the middle that understands everything. Um, And so pharmacy billing involves, as, as you mentioned, several different numbers. Um, But in short, pharmacies get paid um, the less, the the lowest of four numbers. They get paid the, um, the, what price they say the drug costs or what they say they charge a cash-paying customer, that's called the usual and customary price, or they get paid um, the list price, say the MSRP for a car minus a fixed discount um, for each contract, or they get paid based on a so-called maximum allowable cost. It's even more complicated than that, but that's the short version, is that you get paid one of these four numbers, and the computer system at the... Um, at the pharmacy benefit manager just compares what you submit to these different numbers and says, okay, the lowest number is this one and send, and sends you back that price. And, um, I think a perhaps good way of understanding this is, is the way that, um, one of my favorite, favorite bloggers puts it. Um, this is Matt Stoller at the American Economic Liberties Project. He writes a newsletter called Big that talks about monopolies. And anyway, this Sunday he wrote an article um, about things that he views as hopeful on the horizon. And he was saying, so PBMs basically maintain a list of prices and a list of uh, products. So they're basically a spreadsheet that gets to extract fees from people, which I just was like, that, that is such an apt description there's yeah. a spreadsheet and like there's there's more to it than that right they've got there's it's basically a whole bunch of spreadsheets and they just build a computer system that that links all of these spreadsheets together and then spits out a price um cuz like when you send a prescription claim most pharmacies most pharmacists may just think okay they're just going to say okay it's covered or not especially in a chain environment they're not even going to worry about the pricing part but when a prescription claim is sent out the PBM And so it goes from the pharmacy to a switch like powerline or change healthcare or, um, relay health or RX link or anyway, it goes from the pharmacy to a switch. And then the switch says, okay, you put this bin number, this PCN. So we're going to route it to this PBM. And then it goes, and then that PBM says, okay, it's this member ID. Is that member covered? Yes, no. Okay. They're covered. Um, The drug is this, okay, that drug is on this formulary tier, so we're going to apply a 25% of the price as their copay. And then it says, okay, this pharmacy is under this contract, so we're going to do this price. And then they say, okay, and um, this is a 30-day supply versus a 90-day supply, so we're going to apply this pricing. And, oh, also this has a prior authorization, so we're going to block the claim right now and anyway so it references like seven different data points to determine and maybe more i've never actually worked in a pbm but like these are these are the elements that you're gathering from and just anyway but basically they're just a a series of spreadsheets that determines pricing and then extracts a fee for doing so which is a super apt description and I loved it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw that article. And, uh, you shared it on LinkedIn, maybe. I did. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, a, a, as a pharmacy uh, owner, as a pharmacist, you know, you're you're doing the best you can. You're buying drugs uh, as responsibly as possible, keeping your uh, your inventory lean. You're you're doing all the right things. You're providing excellent patient care, and yet the reimbursements are uh, somewhat out of your control. So you get to you get to decide on your level of care and and your investments in in your business, but not on any of your own pricing, which is just bizarre. But um, not only that, then you have to vigilantly um, uh, defend your profits that you have gotten. Yeah. So uh, over the past few years, we've seen at least awareness arise about DIR fees and, and PBMs. Uh, because even just a couple of years ago i think most people were unfamiliar uh, and now those are you know part of the part of the, the healthcare conversations at least um, so when did you see those those numbers start to creep in and really have an effect on on day-to-day business where, where you guys said hey there there's a there's a new challenge here we need to we need to make sure that we're we're being proactive on
1: yeah, so DIR fees are actually kind of fascinating from that perspective like the timeline here because when I went to pharmacy school they weren't they they existed but like no one was paying attention to them um because they were a tiny proportion of the business at that time um, if you read the the most recent proposed rule from from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services they list a chart of like how much DIR was collected from pharmacies by year. And like they started in 2010 and the fees were like in total for the entire country, like $10 million or something. And that was like point point, like 0.001% of total drug costs. And today, um, drug costs to Medicare. And today it's like you look and it's, grown by, CMS put this number in their thing, 107,000% increase until 2020. That doesn't include 2021, oh, and certainly wow. not 22. Um, from 2010 till 2020, the fees grew by 1,070 times Is is the way that I like to put that, because just doesn't mean anything to anybody, right? (laughs) Right. Um, But they've they've increased by a factor of 1,000 to the point where now they constitute 4.5% of the total spend on drugs in Medicare. Um, And that's just pharmacy DIR. DIR is a a broader thing than just pharmacy. It's also um, if a PBM extracts money from a manufacturer for... Um, Formula replacement, they have to report that as DIR to Medicare as well, and that's actually a larger category than pharmacy DIR, which implies that at, at least ten percent, but probably more like fifteen or twenty percent of our total spending in Medicare is fake money. It's not actually spending. It's it's rebates coming back to the plan from the pharmacy or from the from the pharma or whoever else. And that, frankly, from a like I care about other people perspective, um, the IR fees are not just harmful to pharmacies. And I think that pharmacies and pharmacy advocates have done themselves a disservice in the past by um, saying, look, this is all about me and I'm I'm losing money. I'm losing money. No one cares if you're losing money, frankly, like you do but and and your colleagues do but like your senator and your and the seniors they don't care um and so but what they do care about is that DIR fees make Mrs. Jones the senior overpay for her medicines by 20%. You know, if she's yeah. if she's on a fixed income, she's spending $3000 a year and she you're telling me she could be paying 2500 for her prescriptions if if we got rid of these stupid fees yeah, I'm I'm telling you that. Um Yeah, well what's happening
0: yeah, like when when you look for sympathy as a you know successful business owner, it may be hard to find. When you um point out that there's just money leaking from the equation somewhere, <laughs> then it's uh you know, it, it sounds like it's gotten to be that um, you know, excessive issue like we talked about with MedSync for long-term care. You have to do it because it's that big of an issue, or, or managing a huge inventory of, of really, really expensive drugs. That's an ex- the, that extreme situation. Uh, it seems like it's it's here with DIR fees, where you really can't ignore it, and you have to do something. Um, so, what can you do? So,
1: um, the very first thing you can do is basically implement the proposed rule in your own pharmacy. So. <laughs> The the proposed rule that Medicare put out is that, um, is that the Medicare plans have to account for DIR fees as the worst possible reimbursement to the pharmacy at the point of sale. And then they have to base co-pays on that, which means yeah. that Mrs. Jones wouldn't pay 20% too much anymore and doesn't hit the donut hole dramatically sooner than she otherwise would because um, DIR fees are – At at their core, they're just a financial engineering tactic to be able to move around the benefit um, so that the plan pays less money. Um, Because the plan, like AARP, Medicare Xaver Plus, Silver Script Choice, these plans that seniors enroll in, they're liable for the drug costs for like 75% of the drug costs, basically, um, until someone hits the donut hole. And then they drop to 5% liable. And, um, and then the senior jumps up to 25% liable at that point. And so um, the, anyway, so if they can inflate the cost of drugs from say a drug should be a hundred dollars a month. And that's what the pharmacy receives at the end of the day after DIR fees, they make it so that the upfront reimbursement is 120 and then they take back $20. Um, that means that Mrs. Jones will move into the donut hole much quicker than she otherwise would because she's paying because the cost is under $20 instead of a hundred. And it's based on that upfront price is how she moves into the donut hole. Um, but what you can do in your own pharmacy to, um, to mitigate the effect of DIR fees on your own bottom line is just basically program into your pioneer system or if for some reason someone who's not on Pioneers listening to this into your X30 or your computer or X or whatever system you're using, you can put in an estimate of what the fees are and I would advocate for putting in the worst case possible reimbursement to you. Because these fees statutorily uh, or, or rule making wise have to be um, a range. They can't just say we're gonna take this much money and that's the end of the story. There has to be some kind of performance metric on it, and these performance metrics are frankly just a smokescreen to justify taking the money so that you can inflate the, the dollars. It's not really about the performance measures. People say that, PCMA will say that, but it's not about the performance measures. One of the plans takes uh, between 39% and 41% of what they pay the pharmacy as a fee, and the differential between that, that's the performance part. but. Even if your pharmacy is perfect on every single metric, they're still going to take 39%. That's not, that's not about performance.
0: Yeah. It, it's hard to say that that's a, uh, a performance based fee, <laughs> right? It's, it's the, the
1: 2% is performance based, but the, the 39% is not, it's just, we're right. just going to take this money because we can Um, and so anyway, um, you can put into your system though, like in Pioneer, you can go and to Alt tt third party edit, DIR fees, add DIR fees. And you can you can say, okay, the worst case scenario for this plan is forty-one percent. And then the system will do the math for you. That's why we have computers is to do math. Right? It's what they're there for. There's no reason that someone should be doing in their head, okay, well, I think I I think I pay about, I don't know, ten percent. DIR fees across the board, so I'm just gonna knock 10% off the price that I'm getting paid on everything. No, just, just tell the computer this is how I get, this is how these DIR fees work, and let it do the math for you, just like with your rebates. Tell the system this is how much rebate I should get, let it do the math for you, and then you, and then the reason I say implement this in your pharmacy is because once you see the numbers up front, it grants clarity that, like, mo- most pharmacy owners that have not done this, they just treat DIR fees as, like, this magical thing that just comes out of the ether and they take money from you. But if you see at the point of sale, okay, this prescription is going to have a $257 DIR fee, and I'm only making $100 on this prescription, then you can, you can adjust your behavior – according to the way that you're getting paid. Um, whereas if if you just have $100,000 just come out of your bank account randomly, you have no idea how to change what you're doing in your pharmacy um, to adjust to what the DIR fees are doing to you. And like you can do all sorts of stuff about it. You can um, see if you can get a different drug covered that maybe has a lower DIR fee or a higher margin. You can see if maybe there's a different brand of the same medicine that would do the same thing. Um, and so if you can do that, you can take control of your destiny. There's just, I don't know, just just the ability to see what these fees are is um, is worth putting in the effort to to make these DIR fees evident at the point of sale because if you can see them, you can do something about it. If you can't see them, it's just magic money that comes out of somewhere.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you've spent a lot of time uh, going through the contracts and, and trying to understand uh, those DIR fees. So I guess, A, that's the first step is awareness, is, is pinpointing those, um, loading those in your system. Um, is that something that every pharmacy has access to? To find that information,
1: they should be. I mean, whether whether you keep all of the faxes from Caremark and Optum and Express Scripts that say we're going to charge you this much for this one and this much for this one and this much for this one, or if you have a PSAO um, and you're able to access those documents, they publish guides every year. LeaderNet publishes a great guide. HealthMart publishes a great guide. Epic publishes a great guide. All all of these PSAOs publish. These guides that say, "Okay, if it's this bid, this piece, and this group, then it's going to be this much." It takes some time to read through those and figure out what it's saying, but um, I think that people should be aware of what it's saying. And frankly, if uh, if someone doesn't want to read through those and figure out what it is, just just give me a call.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know. I know a lot of people have uh, have reached out. You know, uh, pharmacists love to help other pharmacists. Um, That's one thing that's just always great about community pharmacy is that sense of community within pharmacy. Um, But, yeah, so I know you've helped out uh, a a lot of pharmacies with that. So part of that challenge is that, you know, even a pharmacy down the street from you. Theoretically, is going to have different values uh, in those equations, right?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So. It, it depends on which PSAO you're part of. It depends on if you negotiated weird contracts with VBMs. but inside of a given PSAO, it's going to be pretty much the same. Um, and so, yeah, our pharmacy, for example, um, is standard cost share with the, with a plan called mutual of Omaha and the jollies that is a mile away from me um, is preferred cost sharing with that same plan. And that, standard versus preferred cost sharing means that our dir fees for that same plan are different um and so if i bill a claim for mrs jones at my pharmacy she's going to have a different copay and i'm going to pay a different dir than if she goes to the jollies that is one mile away she's going to have a lower copay and they're going to pay more dir yeah th- there's there's differences between pharmacies
0: so so what happens then awareness is uh it is first first uh On the list, I guess you know. Are you are you just adding that third party information in? Are you are you pinpointing specific NDCs? Do you have those lists and and kind of know where your therapeutic substitution opportunities lie? I mean, what can you do to mitigate that uh, that DIR fee?
1: So, um, yeah, I mean, there's like I mentioned, you can switch NDCs because some of these are based on what the AWP of the product is, and just inside of a given uh, GCN like, say say you're dispensing metformin 500 milligrams. You can change which metformin you're dispensing because one brand has an AWP of like $18 per 500 tablets and one of them has an AWP of like $1,000 per 500 tablets. And so if your DIR fee is based on that, that AWP number, then changing which NDC you bill changes how much DIR fee you pay. Um, that's one example. You can also see about, like you said, therapeutic substitution. So say, I don't know, say someone's on low Sartan and you're losing money on it, you can say, well, you know, low Sartan's actually not the best drug in this class. Olmesartan actually has substantially more blood pressure reduction. Can we see about switching to that? And it's possible that you'll you would actually go from losing money after the d i r fee to making money, but maybe not. it depends and so there's there's also um, being aware of which of your clients are um low income subsidy members is a big thing as well because. A DIR fee from one plan to another can be dramatically different. One of them can be 5% of what you pay, of what they pay you. And one of them can be 40% of what they pay you. Oh, wow. And so if someone's on a low income subsidy, they can change plans four times during the year. And so, if you know, Mrs. Jones qualifies for low income subsidy. You can say, well, Mrs. Jones, look, I'm losing money on this. Um, if it's all the same to you, I would love it if you could switch from this plan to this plan, because because they, and you have to make sure that you're actually doing this in a way that benefits them, not just you. Right. Sure. sure. But the, the reason that you are approaching them is because there's a problem that you're, you're losing money, but then you make sure that they go onto a plan that is beneficial for them. And hopefully it's also beneficial for you um, but like just changing from one plan to another can make a dramatic difference. And, um, and there are plans that don't charge DIR fees. Um, yeah. and so a lot of our clients at our pharmacy, we've actually switched to HMO plans here because they go to the, all those doctors and they actually have lower co-pays there and they don't pay a premium and, um, and, to boot, we don't have any DIR fees with that plan. So it's a win, 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 win. Um, and the plan is thrilled to have a new member that is Medicare Advantage versus part D. So anyway, sure. Go.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, really it, what's funny is we think about switching plans. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a focus in September and October and then, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times that's that's not an option that's that's revisited throughout the year. That's a really good point. Um, so, you know, part of it is, OK, I, I've got this contract, um, you know, and, I'm, and this is what we're you know, this is the, the equation of trying to survive in. What if it's just a bad deal? Like can what what can an independent pharmacy do if, uh, you know, if, if they have a contract that's that's. Maybe, you know, not as good as the the pharmacy they visit down the street. You know, is there some something they can do at that point?
1: This is probably a reference to a prior podcast that we we did um, (laughs) where we talked about the fact that our pharmacy um, decided to leave our PSAO. So most independent pharmacies use an intermediary to do their third party contracting called the Pharmacy Services Administrative Organization or PSAO. and. That is beneficial because um, reading through the contracts is complicated. Going and figuring out which ones to take and which ones not to take is complicated. And a lot of folks just don't want to have to figure it out. So they sign up with the PSAO. We were with the PSAO called LeaderNet for probably 30 years. Um, from when they Probably when they started and they started pitching it, the Cardinal show up until 2020, we were part of LeaderNet. Um and it served us well. Um but um, as I was reading and um interacting with other pharmacy owners, I discovered that um that a small fraction of people don't use the PSAO at all and they do all the contracting on their own. And there are some benefits to doing that because if you do the contracting instead of delegating it to a fourth party, I guess at this point, because it's patient pharmacy, PBM, PSAO We're we're delegating this to a fourth party. Um, Then you can choose to reject contracts that are poor. Um, And like, frankly, as I, as I read through some of these contracts, it is absolutely insane that anyone would take them. And yet almost all of the PSAOs accept some of these contracts. Like, just as a, as a, I guess a point of reference, um, most pharmacies will hit break even to losing a little bit of money when a contract reads that they'll get paid on brand name drugs AWP minus minus eighteen percent. Okay, and so th- that's that's about where most pharmacies will break even or even be losing a little bit of money. If they're if it's more than that, they'll make money. If it's less than that, they'll they'll be breaking even or losing money. And um, some of these contracts are the AWP minus a 27% discount. Man. And so the pharmacy's like, guaranteed under that contract to lose 10% of their revenue on a branded drug. So if we're talking Humira, which has like a $6,000 AWP, you're talking losing $600 every single time you fill that prescription under that contract. And that, like, the the correct response to a contract like that is to just say, nope, reject it. And yet, because pharmacies are in a market where so much of their business is dependent on a third party, um, that third party can make the rest of their business that goes through that third party dependent on them accepting those contract terms. Sure. And so the pharmacy is forced to accept either accept the 10% loss on every branded drug they take through that plan or lose a third of their business.
0: Which neither of those sound great.
1: <laughs> right. It's it's a bad cho- it, it's a bad situation. So we we chose to to independently contract and we've rejected several contracts and we we've lost some business as a result. Um, we lost about 11% of our prescription volume the first couple weeks of 2020. Um, and that particular volume, those particular patients have not come back. Um, some of the volume did come back. Um, cause you know, we had, we had room for more clients, so more people showed up. So we, we, we don't accept a lot of the plans that a lot of pharmacies have a huge book of business with. Um, and so that means that we like a lot of pharmacies if you look at advertising will say we accept all prescription we accept all insurance plans but from like a marketing standpoint sure that's great because it means that people don't have to figure out whether you take them or not but from a financial standpoint like if you accept every plan you're losing money I'm pretty sure
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and if you lose 11% of your prescription volume, but that 11% is not profitable, um, you know, that that's not necessarily hurting your, uh, your pharmacy. And and in fact, you know, really, that's, that's the kind of attention that I think draws change, you know, when you when you disrupt that status quo of, you know, this is the cost of doing business and, and allow that uh, to, to continue. You know, eventually, uh, though, I think those are the lines in the sand that that start to uh, make the waves break, you know, we have to
1: say no at some point. And our pharmacy chose to say no to to those kinds of contracts. And it's benefited us We're we are doing a little bit less volume. But um, but our margins per prescription are higher than most other pharmacies. Because, because of those choices and related choices. And so we, we do turn a profit on each prescription that we dispense, but um, it's still a struggle to make sure that the pharmacy stays afloat, right, every day. So
0: so it's, an, it's insane that you said we turn a profit on every prescription we dispense, and I was like, wow. But that's you know really every business uh, should be doing that. Right? Should, should be, be doing that. Thing, like, like it, it is. It, it's a wild sign of the times that like that's a powerful statement. So beware, uh, mitigate. You know what else can they do? Uh, should we be looking at uh, you know legislative tools? Uh, are there groups we should be supporting to help raise that awareness and affect change?
1: Yeah. So I mean, NCPA you should be a member of NCPA if you own a pharmacy, you should absolutely be a member of NCPA. They've been suing the government to change the rule that makes DIR fees okay. Um, And the government has a proposed rule out that would kill DIR fees in my opinion. It'll probably make our reimbursements overall stay about the same net of DIR, but at least you'll know what it is and you won't have to play all these games with figuring out how to program your system. Um, and so they're currently in a comment period and if no pharmacist comments on this then all of the comments will come from optimar x express grip cbs caremark pcma and ahip who will all say we need dir fees (laughs) uh, or else we will go bankrupt and premiums for medicare part d will go through the roof so go comment on the rule the the deadline to comment on the proposed rule, I think, is March 7th, so go comment on it and say, fee's bad, pharmacy's good, I don't know, just write something <laughs> saying, I support this rule, um, because if we don't say anything, then they'll win, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can't, uh, can't complain that you're not heard if you don't speak, so definitely a uh, good call to action, man. So, also, your day off. You, you mentioned early on, uh, it's your day off and you've got four more pharmacies to visit, right? It's my day off <laughs> from the pharmacy,
1: not my day off from my job. I have yeah, like seven yeah. jobs. <laughs> one, of is, one of them is helping people with DIR fees. One of them is visiting pharmacies for Flip the Pharmacy. That's where I'm going later on this afternoon. All right, man. Well, I'm going to let you get back on
0: the road then. Uh, definitely shout out to the Flip the Pharmacy crews and uh, definitely send uh, send her best to uh, your dad and everyone there at the pharmacy.
1: Will do. Thanks, Will. Have a good one. All right. Thanks, thanks man. You. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond the Scripts, presented by the Catalyst Pharmacy Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please support our channel by liking, subscribing, and clicking the notification bell so that you'll be notified anytime we post new content. To stay up to date with all of the latest independent pharmacy news and content, follow Pioneer Rx on your preferred social media platform.